Hello and welcome to the Wittered Report podcast, where we empower business advisors to transform businesses. This podcast is your source for information and news you need for your accounting, bookkeeping, or tax practice. Don't forget to check out scalingnewheights.com for information about our conference in June. And if you subscribe to this podcast, we will have a special registration offer just for you coming up soon. And now your hosts, Joe Woodard and Heather Satterley. Well, it's great to be here again with you, Heather, talking about another important topic for accountants and bookkeepers. How have you been? Good, really good. And this is a this is a really important topic. Probably, I would say the number one pain point that's going on in our industry right now. Well, according to a poll of the top 100 most influential people in accounting by Accounting Today, it is the chief. We were all polled, and of the top 100 most influential people, we all agreed. The majority of us agreed this is the key problem facing the accounting and bookkeeping professions right now, and is the staffing crisis. Now, if you're a sole practitioner in here and you have no intentions of ever hiring, I don't want you to tune out from this podcast episode because you're not the only one in a staffing crisis. Your clients may be as well. So a lot of what we're going to share today could help them, help you to help them. And then you may not always be in a position where you want to work by yourself and understanding what your options are for beefing up your resources, perhaps without having to pick up a lot of overhead could be very valuable for you. So I'm going to open this up, Heather, by talking about the problem a little bit, and I'm going to be very excited to hear your thoughts. And to start, I think it's important for us to know how we got here. We got here from a combination of things where first, our industry requires more specialized knowledge. It used to be somebody could go to trade school, they could learn T accounts, and they could understand where to put their debits and put their credits maybe adapt that a little bit to a piece of software, one piece of software, like real world accounting or QuickBooks or Peachtree back in the day. And their only learning curve was to learn that one piece of accounting software, and they were off to the races. But now in order to be a qualified, competent bookkeeper, you may have to know six or seven or 10 different software solutions run by the practice while You also need to understand several things that are happening with your clients' technology, like e-commerce platforms and integration with those platforms in order to capture data, uh, how to to use something like Plaid to link bank accounts into various feeding systems and uh, that aren't QuickBooks Online where it happens uh, organically or zero. Um, And uh, all the way down to Heather, your Zapier skills got really honed in when you were a practice leader because you found that in order to really get the job done, you had to do some low code programming work. So I'm not saying that that's always a qualification or that everything I mentioned is always a qualification. I'm just painting the picture of it has gotten technologically much more complex. And so what we're really doing is we're hiring small business technology users who happen to know a debit from a credit and having to train them in a wide range of things. Well, that's a staffing challenge. There's a decrease in college grads. um, And I'm going to add to that for our bookkeeper friends and our enrolled agent hiring companies. Even if it's not a four-year degreed school, there's a decrease in trade school and community college outcomes where people are choosing the accounting and bookkeeping professions. Let's just face it. If you ask anybody 
in high school, forget kids because they always want to be a firefighter or a police officer or whatever. But, you know, if you ask anybody in, um, in, in high school, you know, what's your aspiration? What do you want to be when you grow up? Um, they'll either give you something that is glamorous or life impacting or makes them famous, makes them rich or makes a big impact. Or they'll just simply say, I don't know yet, but I do I know I want to make a difference. Right. And and mm-hmm. if that's the mindset and it's a good mindset of this generation, we've done a bad job as a profession connecting um, our, the goodness that we bring and the benefit we bring to that make a difference value prop. It's there. But we've done a bad job telling that story and they're just not signing up. So um, enterprise level firms are heavily recruiting right now. So it used to be that we didn't really, as small practitioners, compete with the top 50 largest firms or top 10 largest firms or even top five largest firms in the, in the world. Now we do because more and more they are taking their client accounting services department to the small business community. And they're hiring the very same people that we are seeking to hire. Um, sometimes they're hiring them right out of our practices with better benefits, better salary packages, better career opportunities, more job security, and often they offer virtual off, uh, options where you may not. Um, and then it's not just the enterprise firms. You've got scaled competitors that are hiring now. I mean, I think uh, around this time of the year, we're recording this in February of 2023, right before the Super Bowl, we're seeing uh, a tremendous number of ads from our friends at Intuit about how you don't need a tax preparer anymore, right? Well, just give it a minute. Tax season's going to be done and the ads are going to start turning to, hey, we can do your books for you, right? Now, this doesn't make Intuit bad. It just makes Intuit a company that is acting in the interest of its shareholders. It's doing its job. It sees a market opportunity. It goes after the market opportunity. Okay. So, but it's not just them and they're not the largest. A lot of people think that they are just because they have the flashiest ads, but the largest bookkeeping company in the country right now is H&R Block. They have 7,000 gig economy workers and uh, there are other initiatives like Pilot, which is Bezos funded. That is a scaled bookkeeping corporation, Bench, Belay, Finance Pals. I could go on and on with all of these scaled competitor models. They're also heavily recruiting. And if you run a taxi company, you know that it's hard to find taxi drivers when they can go drive for Uber. If you run a bookkeeping company, it's hard to find bookkeepers when they can go work for their version of Uber or multiple Ubers, which some of these companies allow. That gets me to the impact of the gig economy because all those layer together. A lot of those are gig-based economy operations. But in a sole practitioner appeal, which was accentuated by COVID, business owners uh, were, were, were born out of a couple of sets of scenarios, like a, a lab with a, with a test tube environment that, that sort of bred sole practitioners. And that was they lost their job to the COVID impacts while... Having lost their job, it has now become vogue and even uh, in the mainstream to run your business from your home, which is where I am recording this podcast, right from my home office. So it used to be that you had to go hang the shingle and get the office space and make the big capital investment in order to play with the big boys and girls. And you don't have to do that anymore. Um, and you also don't have to do that with any anybody that you hire. And COVID helped to accelerate that sole practitioner, hang the shingle or I should say non-hang-the-shingle environment. Um, there's also a retirement bubble, which we were facing that COVID accelerated 
And finally, families started moving around during COVID. I know we lost team members, even though we're virtual, and I told them they could stay. We lost team members because they liked working in the local environment with with the majority of their, their teammates. And as soon as they moved to another state, they picked up a job that was localized inside of that state. So would you take all of those factors, some of which were COVID accelerated, you understand that we now have a massive staffing crisis. And the way to combat that crisis is through some creative recruiting. And creative doesn't mean zip recruiter or indeed. Those are not bad. They're just not creative. Creative would be LinkedIn. Creative would be professional associations that you join. Creative would be the employees, the former employees of former clients or the employees of former clients, and people with whom you have not had material impact in a couple of years, but you could go back and say, hey, this person was really competent. And at the appropriate time where it's professional to do so, you can reach out to them. And LinkedIn's really great, especially some tools like sales navigators, because you could put a flag on certain people to say, when their job changes, alert me. So you don't have to constantly watch to see if that ideal person has left your former clients or existing clients' place of business, right? All of those are great ways to recruit people that you know and you love and you trust. And then you have to ask yourself, am I going to recruit them as a full-time person, part-time person, a contractor? What's going to be my relationship with this? And they all have pros and cons. Full-time means you pick up all that extra overhead. You're their livelihood. But on the positive side, they're married to you. Their livelihood depends on you. And that mutual dependence means we're in this together. We're rowing with all of our might to whatever shore that we're rowing to today. A part-time person is less committed to you because they have other livelihood or they have other uh, areas of income or they have wealth that makes them independence with asset or whatever and they're doing it as a hobby or they're just distracted by whatever chapter they're in with life, kids or aging parents or whatever makes them be part-time. So I'm not saying any of these are disqualifiers. They have pros and cons. But the one that I want to really shine a light on, and I'd like to get your thoughts in a minute, Heather, is the the myth of the contractor. Because at least in the state of Georgia, I can't have a contractor who's a bookkeeping or tax producer. Because as soon as I give them a laptop, tell them what software they're supposed to use and determine how they're going to and do quality assurance work on how they do bookkeeping and tax work. And I define the very specific process by which they must do it. I have turned them into an employee. They are not a 1099 contractor. And if I don't do any of those things, I cannot maintain security for my client, consistency of delivery and quality controls. So I have no choice. I must hire. And uh, now that may not be in every state. I can kind of tell you how you've uh, encountered that in your travels, but we'll talk about that in just a minute. But I do want us to remember there is the outsourcing option. Finding and vetting a really quality outsourced operation is one of the biggest challenges. But when you find a good one, then this is an an amazing opportunity for you to solve your staffing crisis, to scale disproportionately to risk and cost. Um, And the good news is, Heather, as you know, over at Woodard, after a trial and error of many years uh, that involved a vetting process at every step, we have found one that we... uh, that we know works well and that we have deployed in a lot of our member firms with great success. So if you're interested in learning more about that, you could simply send an email to info at woodard.com and bring it to mine or Heather's attention and ask us what this great outsourcing option is that we have found 
for our members. Um, and then the last thing I'm going to say here is hire right and hire into the right environment. Use DISC assessments. Use Patrick Lencioni's ideal team player assessment to determine the right candidate and the right fit for the role. And then once you've determined that, make sure it's an environment where they want to stay. You want to build a culture that is compelling, the the kind of culture that even if somebody offered them more money, they would still stick around with you. I mean, it needs to be vision driven. It needs to reinforce the company values and they need to be values that you constantly reinforce and that you recruit from. You got to have measurements so they know exactly how to measure that have the confidence from knowing that they've succeeded well and rewarded when they do. You need to make sure that their role is clearly defined, even as they do know they're supposed to be a team player. They need to be developed as professionals. They need to know that you're making an investment in them by doing so. You want to be generous with your compensation while being prudent, responsible with your company. And you want to evaluate constantly and perpetually so they never have that psychological torture of what does Heather or Joe really think about me? Um, well, if we're not if we're not coaching you or complimenting you at this very minute, we're not thinking about you at all. We're just expecting you to get your work done. So there's a freedom in that, right? Um, you want to splurge a little bit on the interactions, so that, especially in virtual environments, so they can be teams. And in the light of that, meet often, even if it's on Microsoft Teams or on Zoom. And I get back to the bookends. You hire the right person, not just for competency, but for cultural fit. Because one wrong toxic person can start tearing down the entire of your company culture. All right. So now that we talked about the causes and we've done a little bit of a flyby on some of the ways to solve for it. um, Heather, what are you seeing out there with a staffing crisis? What have you seen that works and doesn't work? And, And what do you think about some of the things I've just said? Yeah. So, I mean, you hit, you hit so many of the, of the reasons that, that we're seeing such an issue. Um, the big ones with the, the gig economy, um, you know, the, the larger firms hiring up the, the graduates, but we also have a smaller pool, right? So there's a 9% dis- decrease in graduates with an accounting major since 2016 up through 2020. So the, the numbers are a little bit dated, but that's a pretty big decrease, 9%. Of, of graduates coming out. And I mean, that's not even 100,000 a year. So it's somewhere in like the 70s, 70,000 students. While the demands of the workers are going up. So demand exactly. is going up, supply is going down in terms of human resources. I, absolutely. And, and the other thing that's interesting, and I pulled this off of the AICPA's 2021 trends report, which again, they should issue another one this year. They do it every couple of years. Is that when you look at the curriculums for the college courses, you know, accounting is not it's let's face it, it's it's not a sexy career, right? It's just not. You don't think, oh, I'm going to be this great accountant. You know, we had the movie The Accountant, but that was a little weird. So there's no, you know, people don't celebrate the accountants. Um, but there's a lot of really great, interesting things going on in the accounting industry, and I really feel like in order to engage, you know, the 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 next generation, as it were, that we need to be telling them about that. We need to be focusing on that. Um, you know, a couple of accountants are doing a really great job of making accounting sexy, right? So we have Scott Serrano, who's out there. Um, he's he's rapping. He's rapping his way to the, through the accounting industry. And that's exactly the type of thing I think we need to be doing to catch the attention and say, wait a minute, there's these people that are really fun. 
that are doing really interesting things with technology and their accountants. And I think that 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 if we continue to lead with that, I think we're going to get more interest in it. Um, you know, lead what with was stories really- too. There's methodology, and then there's story. You know, this is how the accountants are changing lives. This is how the accountants are making a difference. Yes, totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And and I think that you know when you look at that, there's a study that they did that they included in this report that looked at the percentage of universities that offer different specializations and specializations. I mean, getting the core accounting concept, everybody needs to do that. The debits and credits, you know, the principles of accounting, all that other stuff. We have to get that. But really people get into accounting because they have an idea of what they want to do. And so where that comes in is a specialization, right? Is a specialization of, of focusing on something, whether it's, you know, forensic accounting and being the person that uncovers, you know, the the, the dirty deeds of the people out there that are, are, are you know, doing financial crimes. Um, there's uh, information technology. So people that are innovating the new technology that these businesses are using to manage their finances. Um, And then, you know, there's accounting systems, systems audit, innovation, management accounting, business valuation. Um, 62% of universities responded that they have no specialization training. 62%. Of our universities, that's that's mm. that's what this report said. And then the percentage that are you know that are responding that they have specializations in information technology, three percent, three percent. You know the accounting systems and systems audit, four percent. So these really kind of I would say sexy accounting topics. Why aren't we teaching them? Why aren't we teaching them in the schools? Why do we have to go outside of our universities where we're expecting? you know, our, our, our next generation to be trained, why do we have to do that outside? Why can't we bring this incredible innovation um, and these great ideas? And ultimately, these are the folks that are coming in that we need to come in and actually lead our industry. So regardless of this, and I know I'm going down a tangent, Joe, sorry, but <laughs> regardless of the staffing crisis, we need to engage them. So to me, I think that's I think that's the greatest threat to our industry is right there. It's staring us right in the face. Is People that- don't understand the job segment. They don't understand the technical aspects of it. They don't understand mm-hmm. the impact of it. And if they do, it seems like there are very few places they can go to actually get equipped to do the job. I mean, I like an accounting in the university system as studying biology, not going to medical school, Right. And I don't want somebody who understands the human biology to do surgery on me. At some point, we have to tell them how to move the scalpel. And that's what's missing here is there's no there's no actual accounting trade school over the top of the accounting theory. We all we all historically have learned that through blood, sweat, and tears under internships and and being you know sort of the junior accountants, junior associates at these big firms. Do that for three or four years, you really get the education, and then you go out and hang the shingle. The problem right. is they're not teaching this either. They're not they're, the the whole the whole system, which wasn't ideal to begin with is not designed to manufacture the accountants of tomorrow. So They're really not. Um, and what they are, you know, it's really the entrepreneurs that are driving this innovation. It's the entrepreneurs, it's the small businesses that are going in and, and, and really creating workarounds for things that don't work. So there's technology that exists for these huge companies. And then we're trying to kind of downsize them to make them fit into a small business whole, you know, cube or whatever, and it doesn't work. And so these entrepreneurs are starting to say, hey, I need this too. And they're starting to innovate. So I would love to see, you know, you've heard of entrepreneurial accounting. I'd love to see that taught at every university. 
I really Absolutely. do. I think that would be and a more missing. formal structured process of technology for the administration of a small business, you know, because the CPA came out with a designation, a technical designation to try to address this problem, but it, it, it didn't, it wasn't engineered correctly to make it happen. So, you know, what happens there is the same entrepreneurialism, entrepreneurialism kicks in and we found that it's our peers, it's you and I and our peers that had to go out there and, and quasi invent the category and then invent the way of addressing it. Um, and we've got to formalize that into a structured yeah, right. educational system. A hundred percent. It has to be formalized. We need standards. We, we, we definitely need to, to bring it into, and we need to formalize it. What so it sounds like that? of all of my reasons for the staffing crisis, one of the ones you're really honing in on saying it's a big cornerstone problem is this specialized technical skills thing. And I couldn't agree with you more because everything else is a pendulum swing. You know, eventually the, the 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 baby boomer bubble will burst and everything will, and the business ownership will kind of neutralize out as they retire from the accountants who are supporting them. Um, and then the enterprise firms will come and gobble up enough that they'll scale up to meet the needs and then reach down into the small business segment. And all those things will solve themselves as long as we can actually do the job of the future. And That's right. the future is changing fast. It is changing fast. I mean, we, we need to have, we need to be having those conversations because, you know, we're going to have, you know, you were talking about the baby boomers and, and, you know, the retirement bubble that happens and we don't have the next generation in place. It, we're, it's, it's going to be a scary time. Um, yes. So it's, we, somehow we have to make it, we have to make the accounting interest industry um, fun and, uh, and, and show, you know, show these kids that it can be really interesting, and fulfilling mm-hmm. and that they can make an impact in a lot of people's lives. I mean, with Woodard, our vision is empowering business advisors, um, you know, to, 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 to transform, to, yeah. to transform the businesses. And I mean, I honestly, that really should be the tagline of accounting as a profession, right? It really should um, be. But that's really a big, I mean, when you think about it that way and you say those words, Joe, that's exciting. Oh, it's extremely exciting, exciting, especially if you understand, because I was just talking with Paul Dunn early this morning, um, the end of his day and the beginning of mine, because he lives in Indonesia. And he said, Joe, you have an amazing vision statement. And I know that you've got the rest in your head, but everybody else doesn't. I said, what do you mean, Paul? He goes, your vision statement is missing two words and everything that follows. And he said, I said, what are are the two words? Uh, Don't leave me hanging, Paul. If you don't know who this is, he's the co-author of Firm of the Future and also the latest book with Ron Baker, Time's Up. Um, And and he said, we empower business advisors to transform business so that. Now finish that out for me, Joe, he says. Mm, And I'm like, this is why he's so brilliant. This is why he's so brilliant. I said, well, you know, I already know the rest of the sentence. He goes, I do. I, I know you know it, but I don't know it. And you're and nobody nobody listened to your vision statement. So what's the rest of the sentence? So that what? I said so that business owners and their employees can be work life harmonized, and they can have the capacity and attention to give to their kids, to their spouses, to their families, to their themselves, to their hobbies, to their charities. And he goes exactly. So so if if we can get to kind of to play off your point there, Heather, if we can get people accountants to understand that the ultimate end game here is to get business owners liberated from the very businesses that they started to do the things that they know and love to do, then we will have hit the, 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 the heart of small business pain and human need. And listen to me, 
Gen Xers, Gen Zers, and everybody else who's high up in the alphabet, um, you're going to change lives. Oh, yes. That is, that's for sure. Absolutely. And we need you. We need you accountants to come in. We want, we want, we want to show you everything and we want you to show us everything. Please, please, please come and play. Um, Definitely. I think the other thing that you were talking about was, um, you know, was the idea that, um, you know, that we have the security risk of like the, of the, of the um, contractor versus the employee. And how do we handle that? And I think you're yeah. you're dead on in the sense that, um, you know that that we you can't if you're providing the processes, if you're providing the equipment, and you're giving the direct direction, it's an employee. So I think that is something that a lot of people they hire a contractor as kind of a a stopgap as they're growing their firms, and they don't realize that they have a, a, a risk there that they need to be paying attention to. So well, this is an amazing conversation, and we could go on, but I've got okay. to move now to the next topic. Um, and we have a segment where we watch TV. You and I both like TVs and TV and movies. And we listen for segments inside of movies and, and TV shows that have business applications. And, and mine's a real low-hanging fruit here. It's a business show. And it's called Succession. And in that show, if you've ever watched it, we're talking about multi-billionaires. You know, the, the top 10, 15, 20 richest people in the world hanging out with each other. And two of these billionaires, multi-billionaires, were, were having a conversation. One says to the other, um, you know, I'm bored. I'm, I'm, nothing excites me anymore. To which, of course, that solicitor's by I me. Mean, what do you mean you're bored? We're, we live on the top of the world. And the bored billionaire says, everything has become too easy and too predictable. Idea, capital, execution. Idea, capital, execution. Idea, Capital execution. Nothing challenges me anymore. And and I paused it and I turned to my wife who works with me in our small business. And I said to her, yeah, why don't you take the capital out of the middle of that and see if he doesn't get excited really fast. <laughs> so, <laughs> which which yeah. really hits the point home that, you know, idea execution is the world our clients live in. They don't have the luxury of burning cash, as they say in the private investment world, how much cash are we burning ahead of turning a profit? (laughs) That's, that's foreign to a small business owner. They start burning cash, they go out of business. Mm -hmm. So, so if we understand back to the, we're changing lives thing that, that they can't afford to burn cash. They can't afford to run out of cash. And often they don't have enough operating capital to get them past the next three payroll maybe not even to the next payroll and where their employees are living paycheck to paycheck, they're living payroll to payroll. If we'll understand that that's the pain they're living in, we know the first place where we can start to change their world. All right. What have you been seeing out there, Heather? So mine's old. I have an oldie, so I haven't seen anything this week. I'm drawing on something from that, that really stuck with me. So big bang theory. It's not even, they're not even doing anymore reruns. Um, but I see this episode all the time and I, it's one of my favorite ones. It's, it's the one where Penny uh, has started making the little hair clips, little flower hair clips, and she is selling them to people and people are really excited about it. And she loves doing it because it's very creative and she's, she's having fun. And so the guys, the guys come up with this great idea to set her up with a website and she's going to start taking online orders and she gets excited. And of course, you know, <laughs> I love with the accountant, we have, uh, uh, we have, uh, oh, I can't remember his name now. Um, Yeldon. 
Yes, thank you. Yes. It was right there. We have Sheldon there with his little visor on playing the accountant <laughs> and, and talking about that. And what ends up happening, she ends up getting more orders that she can handle. They're all in there, you know, with this little assembly line of making these, um, you know, making these these little hair clips. Flowers, yeah, hair clip flowers. Yeah, and and so- Penny blossoms. What, what, she called them penny blossoms, yes. Penny blossoms, that's right, yes. the penny blossoms. And so the, at the end of the day, she's like, this isn't fun anymore. Right. This isn't fun anymore. And, you know, it's great that people love it, but I don't enjoy it. What she really enjoyed was making it for the sake of making the penny blossoms. Mm -hmm. That was the joy to her. And, um, you know, running the business was not. And so really the takeaway there was like, they say you should do what you love, but so often we see people who are doing what they love and then the business part comes in and doing what you love ends up being doing something you really hate. Yes, and she also hated the the volume of it. So yeah. the other thing a business advisor could have come in and said is is put a control mechanism on how many orders can be placed as you ramp up your infrastructure. Here's your technology plan, your infrastructure plan, your resource plan. But you're right, that whole thing is a parable of how you can be the victim of your own success without a plan, a business plan, and mm-hmm. the right people resourcing you, like, for example, the people listening to our podcast that could have helped her to real, really build a true penny blossom business if that's what she wanted. Yeah. But it sounds to Absolutely. me like maybe that's never what she wanted was your point. Yeah. I think she wanted to, to design the penny blossoms and then have somebody else do everything else. Right? That's exactly right. She wanted to innovate. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. All right. So Heather, every episode, we like to talk about an awesome book we've read. And I understand you have read an awesome book. You're going to tell us about it right now. Yes. So actually, I have you to thank for me reading this awesome book. Uh, it's Measure What Matters by John Doerr. And uh, it's it, it was actually, I loved it because it gives you a an actionable way to measure kind of um, not quantifiable goals that you have, but qualitative goals that you have, right? So if you have, if when you're setting goals for yourself, and it could be I want to become more, um, and I'm trying to think of one now, but I want to become, <laughs> you know, more diligent about drinking well water is something that's you could do quantitative, but I want to become I'm going more to the gym, about, right? I use that going one. Going to now. the gym. Yeah. I want to go or, to the gym five days a week, but what's the quality measurement? Right. And so, and, and the other thing could be something like saying ums, right? I, that's something that I'm personally working on is like, I say, um, all the time. So that's something that's not really quantitative, it's qualitative. So setting a goal for how are you going to measure that? How are you going to measure the success of not saying um in your life anymore? And so he does a great job of giving you ways to structure your goals and breaking them down to you have an objective. I want to be a better speaker. And then you have a key result. A key result is I'm going to say 50% less ums to become a better speaker. And then you put in action items that actually tell you, you know, there are basically things that you're going to do in your life to drive those key results, which ultimately drive the, the, the greater objective. So I love that. It's really been life-changing for me in not really just in business and in the work that I do every day, but everything in my life. You know, when I, you know, I ride horses, Joe, I've actually used the OKR methodology now in my riding and training my horse. And this is something that I want to achieve with her how do I break that down into a key result? And then what are the action items that I need to do in order to achieve those key results and actually get the outcome I'm looking for? 
Yep. And as a manager, and you're right, I use them in my own life as well, but um, as my personal life, but as a manager, I really love them because as you know, we say here at Woodard often, um, I'm not, you can't predict ultimately if you're going to drive your outcome. That's always a target. But what you can predict and what I can hold you accountable to is, are you doing the activities you say you're going to do in the quantities you say you're going to do them? And to your point, with the quality that you say you're going to do. And so if you take something simple like sales motions, right? You know, a sales rep may have a target of enrolling 20 members this quarter into our membership program. That's a target. That's crystal ball stuff. I'm not going to fire them if they have 15 instead of 20. But what I am going to hold them accountable to is, did they do their 25 outbound reaches per day? Um, and, and, and not just the quantity, but to your point, the quality of those, were they measuring how many of those emails were open? Were they constantly tweaking the subjects to get the open rates up? So that they're not just sending emails, they're sending effective emails, right? And and then the accountability thing is what's so huge because in a virtual world, I have no visibility into whether anybody in this company is working at any given time. The only thing I have visibility into is have they, have they done their activities to the quantities and qualities that they promised? You know, and, you know, something I'll share with with you and the rest of the world, which, you know, people who know me know well are like, of course she does, but I have ADHD. And so having a framework for this to help keep me focused on what I need to get done is incredibly helpful. So I would say to all of my fellow ADHD people out there that go after the shiny objects and, and get distracted, you know, reading John Doerr's book and understanding how you can structure the things that you do to stay focused is really incredibly helpful. Yeah. And we do cover that book, as you know, in our management course, and we cover prioritization in our productivity course. And I think anybody, even if you don't struggle with ADD or ADHD, I think everybody struggles with prioritization and procrastination. And and you're right. They just, it helps everyone in the, in the equation. Um, so I'm so glad you surfaced that book. It's one of our all-time favorites over here at Woodard, as you know, we, we use it heavily. Um, so we like to cover every episode our favorite social posts. So since you let out with the book there, Heather, I'm going to lead out with my social post. Um, and this one comes from Nicole Davis. And uh, she asked, is anyone giving loyalty discounts to clients? Inquiring minds want to know. And I posted something there that was a little contrary to the thinking of the threat. Um and she was asking a great question. She wasn't forming an opinion, but a lot of people who responded to Nicole were saying, absolutely, you know, the longer you give the client, if you go up on your prices, insulate them from the price increases and, and so forth. And, and I took a position to the polar opposite of the, where the thread was going in Twitter. And I, I said, my actual t- tweet back was value, not the length of the client relationship is key. How much more valuable are you to the client after five to 10 years? And that justifies any increase in price. So I I would encourage everybody listening to this to not base your price off of your cost um, and not to base your price off of how long you've worked with the client, because both of those are ultimately wrong drivers and ultimately they're self-punitive. The longer you earn the client's business, the less money you make, the more efficient you become, which you will do over time. 
the less money you make. Instead, how much more effective can I be once I know that person's books, their tax returns, um, their giving uh, trends, their retirement plans inside and out? Uh, the answer is significantly more valuable. And therefore, they should be the first people where you increase the price. That was a little self-congratulatory because it was my reply I was talking about. I'm, I'm <laughs> going to try to focus on other people's tweets, but I was really focusing on Nicole's um insight is what I really want to highlight is the question we need to be asking ourselves. How do we handle these long-term client relationships? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I would follow up with, I'm going to go to my mom. Hi, mom. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to go to my mom who is a CPA. She's a retired CPA. And when I first started working with her years and years and years ago, I remember her telling me that she, she, when she took on new clients, typically they were in a certain stage within their business cycle and that she increased her rates as she developed her relationship with uh, the clients. And, and the reason was exactly what you said. As she got to know the clients, um, her advice and her guidance to them became much more valuable. And also she was helping them to grow. And so in her mind, they were growing together. And so she thought of it as a relationship. And I mean, this was 30 years ago. Um, so, you know, she was a little ahead of her time on, on that, which, um, but that's exactly how she thought of it. She didn't do the discount piece of it because she felt like once they created that relationship, they were building on it and, and offering a discount for longevity really does go a little bit backwards in, in that type of relationship. So, so my, what's yours? Yes. Oh, my tweet was from Jason Stats, who's one of my, my favorite people. He's love, love Jason. And, yeah. Love Jason. Yeah. And he was actually responding to a webinar that Jason was part of. I think he was part of it with Allison Ball and a couple of other, uh, uh, David Leary, I think was on it, Uh, quite a few really cool folks. And they were talking about how firms are starting to purge some of their clients and where, you know, because they're not ideal clients and where are those clients going to go? And so he he stated, you know, there's three types of accounting firms. And I think we're going to have a great discussion about this, Joe. Hmm. Number one is firms cutting clients who are no longer a best fit. Number two, which are firms afraid to cut clients because they're unsure clients will have anywhere to go. So the loyalty, we're going back to loyalty there, right? And then firms that are afraid to launch because they don't have enough clients yet. Hmm. So it's it's funny because... I think we also the one that he didn't he didn't add, which I would add, you know, another one here would be I think that we have about 60 percent of accounting firms that are still stuck in the last century and aren't doing anything. And I think those are the ones that we don't see at conferences. Those are the ones that, you know, that we don't see on webinars and that aren't making a lot of noise. And I think they're still kind of where they were doing the same thing that they were doing, you know, 30 Mm -hmm. years ago. I would agree with that entirely. And, and I would say that, um, you know, all of these are somehow rooted in some kind of, you know, a fear, fear on behalf of the client, fear on behalf of myself. And um, and it speaks to the risk intolerance that that I think all humans have to some degree, of course. But um, I've seen the more characteristic of people with processor type personalities that gravitate toward um, absolute industries of engineering, architecture, accounting tax. Um, you know, there's something, something about the, 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 the way that 
I do a tax return and the lack of, and I know there are judgment calls, but the lack of subjectivity, the objectivity of the, and the empirical nature of the data, it, there's some correlation between that and, and risk intolerance. Um, though I don't have a scientific study to back that up. That's observation. But that's what I'm seeing too. And, and, um, and that third one, I kind of, the thought that went through my head is, is the old saying, if you wait till you're ready to have kids, you'll never have kids. If you wait till you're married, mm-hmm. you never get married. And, you know, at some point you just have to say, well, I'm never going to be ready to open up my own practice. The question is just, do I want to, and do I have a plan for doing so? And then you kind of have to move before you're ready. Yeah. You know, when I, when I, I left my firm that I was working at back in 2017 to launch Saturday training consulting, I remember thinking that I was standing on the edge of a cliff and there's two ways to think about that. There's two ways to think about that. One way is you step off the cliff and you, you fall to your demise. Right. And that's the fear. That's the fear that you're going to do that. But then if you flip it on your head and you think of, of a bird and, I love this because this actually flows right into our conference theme, which yeah, is our conference soar. theme of soar. Yeah, coming up. Right, that if you jump off that cliff and you open your wings and you take that risk and you really believe in what you're doing, then you've got the ride of your life. Right. So I think it is. It's you know we are so um, you know we are we're so driven by fear, and I don't want to say driven because that's not the right word. We're held back by fear, and um, it's 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 liberating when you are in that place where you feel paralyzed by the fear. When you take that step to actually move forward, there is like this huge weight that's lifted off your shoulders. All of a sudden, all of these opportunities and ideas and, you know, you start to see things in a whole new way. And so I, I, I think that's something I'm really passionate about is helping people work through that and understand that there's just so much that can happen. And if you just stay put. When you know that there's process and you know that there's people that out there to support you, it'll get you, it'll get you past the fear barrier. It really will. Well, Heather, it's been amazing talking with you again, and we get to do this again in one week and we'll see you then. Thank you for joining us. For more information, please visit woodard.com slash podcast.